Hello from Monrovia, wherever you are, we would like to say welcome to Talking Pod. This is where we stare social, cultural, and political conversations that are often overlooked and less stressed or discussed in society. My name is Gerald Hudges, your host for this series segment with our dear friends from Sleepless in Monrovia. Over the next couple of weeks, Talking Media will be collaborating with Sleepless in Monrovia to present you an eight-part series sharing provocative social norms-altering pieces written by some of their writers. We're pleased to collaborate with Sleepless in Monrovia to amplify the voices of these writers only here on Talking Pod. And so today we are hosting a guest who has chosen to remain anonymous. This anonymous guest wrote a blog post titled Who Thought This Was a Great Idea? published by Sleepless in Monrovia. And if it is your first time listening or tuning in, Sleepless in Monrovia is a social justice blog dedicated to giving the voice to various social justice and societal issues affecting Liberians, especially women. So on that note, we'd like to say welcome to you, Demosthenes, um, to Talk Pod. Thank you for accepting our invitation. Thank you. Could you just briefly tell our listeners um, who you are, obviously without mentioning your name, but perhaps your values, what you believe in, and what um, inspired you to write this piece? Um, so when I was fortunate to go to college, I took a lot of politics and history and political theory classes. And at the end of my senior year, I completed this seminar where we read the great works of the um, ancient Greek historian Thucydides. And at the end, the professor asked us who we, who we identify with most of all the characters in the book. And being a joker, I picked some guy called Alcibiades. He's a horrible man, very ambitious, and um, very high sexual drive and sexual immorality. And she was like, no, that's not what you are. You're Demosthenes. And then she, I actually had no idea who Demosthenes was. To that point, so I Googled him, and apparently he was a smart guy. He had a speech impediment, which I think I also have a speech impediment, so that was perfect that she thought I was Demosthenes, but he was a great artist, he was a great writer. So I decided that's a great name to have since she thought so highly of me to her and think that I was worthy of being called Demosthenes. Wow, that's interesting. Would you mind telling us what this piece is about? Um, who thought this was a great idea? And by the way, to our listeners, this was the most read piece on Sleepless in Monrovia's blog last year. So congratulations to Thank you. you. Um, who thought this was a great idea? What what really inspired this article? There are a few things. So I was reading this article about the legacy of Barack Obama that um, whenever he thought his advisors did something horrible, his first question was who thought it was a great idea? And I thought that was a really catchy <laughs> title to use for this piece. And the piece was basically about questioning the assumption behind whoever thought George Weah would be a great president of this republic. I've always maintained that fundamentally that person should be the source of all of our problems. I don't think George Weah, in his wildest imagination, ever thought he could be president if he wanted to. People must have stood that ambition. And it was a very dangerous ambition because over the last two years we've seen one monumental miscalculation after the other, just a bunch of bad policies. And a president that simply has no idea what he's doing, what he wants to do, he surrounds himself with people also who have no idea what they're doing who are not smart enough, who are not experienced enough, and who simply do not have the energy or the sort of the moral qualities to lead this country at a safe way in. So who thought it was a great idea was sort of like listing all of the government saints, all of their misdemeanors, saying like, these are all the bad things they've done. Like, how can we get out of this? And then towards the end of the article, sort of like a rallying cry about the destiny of this country and like how we shouldn't allow this administration to diminish that. We should keep fighting to uh, preserve what this country was meant to be from its initial founding. And, and just in continuation on, on that note, what was this country meant to be uh, from its initial founding? So Liberia was founded on the idea of freedom and liberty. 
Like there are free slaves who took the bull step to come to a place they had no idea, a place they've never been, a place whose climate was really hostile to them. So that very simple act of daring to come so far away from America, even though they were being enslaved somewhere. So I guess freedom year under these harsh conditions was much better than being enslaved. But I think there's something fundamental about the Liberian character, the Liberian destiny, that we were meant to be that country that stands as a beacon of freedom and a beacon of hope for the rest of Africa and for ourselves. And I think over the last 170, 273 years, we have now late up to that, there have been obvious contradictions in a country found on the idea of freedom and liberty and then enslaving other people who were, who were there, but that still doesn't diminish the fact that this country has a destiny where it's meant to be a country where there's liberty and equality for all, whether it's through the respect for rule of law, access to education, access to health. But those, are the those are the things Liberia should be standing for, those are the things we should be aspiring to. And I don't think we have, and I don't think George Ria understands that or people around understand that. I don't even think the understanding of this country is meant to be. And that's some of the root cause of this sort of like mismanagement and complete disregard for their job. They don't take the job very seriously, in my opinion. And I think that's very dangerous for the country is meant to be. For me, uh, it was quite laughable. But again, I stand to be corrected. Um, I remember two years ago when we had our elections and the CDC currently led government campaigned on the promise of um, change for hope. There were a lot of debates nationally about that campaign title. Where do you see alignment with that particular campaign promise or disalignment? Um, actually, I don't think it was any campaign promise. The president didn't show up in any of the debates, so we had no idea what his policy ideas were. The CDC just ran on a sort of like anti-establishment, anti-elite campaign, devoid of substance, devoid of any policy alternative. So change for hope was really, really vague. It's meant to just cause confusion. He actually achieved that. Like, no one who voted for Josh Ria can really articulate to you what he said he was going to do. Like Joseph wrote that campaign on building roads and improving our infrastructure, communist campaign on his like corporate expertise and how he was able to grow the economy. Some of those things were like far-fetched vision, but at least they were able to say something to us. George Ria didn't say much. So that's why one of the things I mentioned in the article was that like, first of all, we should just ban him from running for president the moment he didn't show up to the debate. You cannot disregard deliberation, which is fundamental to a democracy. N not cutting you off, but when you say, you know, ban him from running in the elections, don't you think that's going against our fundamental... No, no, I'm not... not Right and freedom. Not banning like pass a law say if you don't come to debate, you shouldn't run. But I think we should take this community less serious. People should call him out, people should be very vigorous in their protests. Demand this man shows up, shows up to a debate. Coming after Ellen Johnson sort of a government with all his flaws that did so much. It was coming out of the Ebola crisis, coming into a global economy where the natural resources prices were down. The only way he could have sort of like alleviated whatever concern people had about his presidency was to show up to these debates and tell us what he was gonna do, but he didn't do any of that. Again, you, you didn't mention that uh, their campaign was anti-elite. Anti-elite, anti-establishment. Yes. How do you sort of justify, there is this big, you know, debate whether or not the current president, George Weah, should have participated or not. And a lot of his supporters felt that he shouldn't have participated, given that we have over 60% illiteracy rate in our country. So intellectual conversation, high-level intellectual conversation on policies might not have been understood by the masses. So there, there are two things. First of all, it's self-motivated reasoning. They don't understand the president can't do that, so to justify why he shouldn't show up. Second of all, the argument makes no sense. How is he able to convince them to actually vote for him. We're not saying he should show up to debates and start to draw demands of black curve, um, curve graphs. The president speak the way that appeals to his base, tell us what he was going to do. If we want to blow up the bar so much for what a president should be, blow up the standards for what a president, which is the highest office in the land, if we're going to set much higher standards for our people in like setting government ministries, and we're going to give our president a pass, saying, oh, we're, we're 
so it doesn't matter, but they could reach in for hope. They know what CDC means. They're not idiots. The president who comes to a debate speaking like we're in English, which again, we appeal to his base. The president has a master's degree, so I do not understand what the argument is about. He's very educated. So running running an anti-elite campaign also didn't make no sense. The president has a, has a master's degree. And the president base, they understand English, they understand things. You could at least run and say, okay, we'll build roads. But they're lowering the bar for a self-motivated reason. Our candidate is unqualified and incompetent to do this. So let's make a reason that will make sense why he shouldn't show up. What other options would have been better than George Weir? Uh, I think almost everyone who ran in that campaign, we have said Prince Johnson, would be a better option than George Weir. And maybe Magdala Cooper, not so much. But the point is, no one goes to the presidency prepared. There's no school for that. People go to policy schools, but they don't teach you how to be a, be a president. But there are things you have to do that prepares you for that. Either you, you have executive level experience, running businesses and big corporations, or you're managing people, making tough decisions, which is what you do when you're president. You have to make budget choices, defense, and all the issues. There's also public sector experience. People need to get to understand how government functions. The president was in the Senate, or the president before he was president was went to the Senate for a few years, didn't do much, didn't really pass any serious bill, or didn't really speak much. So again, we have no idea what sort of like policy interest the president had, what he was going to fight for, we don't know. But if you look at the other candidate in the race, they have, so coming down with the sort of like high level corporate experience, he's managed budgets bigger than Liberia's budget. But his limitation was, for all his like sweet talk and sophistication, can we trust someone who's never worked in the um, public sector before? There's a big difference between working at a company or a place where you have a budget, you have operations, plans and there's money available to implement those things. Whereas in the government, you can have all your big plans, but there's no money. So I wasn't really convinced about his, his ability to navigate this like new terrain, like this complex system, how to look for money in the, the public sector context. Joseph Boyka, a lot of experience. I don't think he was at the appropriate age. He looks tired, he looks unmotivated. For the kind of energy we need, after Ellen Johnson said, like, Vice President Boyka didn't give me any indication that he was willing to be and he was able to even be that candidate. And he's, yeah, he's been around for quite a long time, which is good that you understand how government should work. But for a country that is so young, we need someone who's sort of like age and energy level match where the country is at. But I think he would be a much better option than George Weah. There will be some semblance of continuation from Donald Johnson's early. He built these contacts in the international system while he was vice president. And at least he had the temperament and moderation. Our current president doesn't have any of that. The work ethic. The president goes to work really, really late, 1.30 p.m. most days, leave early, play soccer all the time. Like, uh, how, how do you monitor when the president goes no, to there was a day I was, I was around the president's house and it was 1.36 when the president left his compound. Maybe he was working from home. We don't know, but I doubt it. Okay. You're listening to the Writer's Podcast Series brought to you by Talking Media and Sleepless in Monrovia. Um, there are people who may argue also that President George Weah has been in office for just two years and he inherited a bad economy. Um, moreover, it's not really realistic to turn things around just within two years. What do you have to say about that? In fact, you yourself admitted here that he inherited a bad economy. We had just overcome the Ebola crisis, right? So all of those things, you know, global economic crisis and what have you just in two years turn things around is not too realistic. We should give him some time. What, what, what's your opinion about that? Those are all valid concerns, but the president hasn't shown us any plan to get us out of this problem. It took them almost a year and a half, almost two years into the administration to publish their proper agenda for economic development, which I describe in the piece as a hastily put together school project. If you read it, it's just a bunch of copy and paste from places. It doesn't really seem to have a coherent vision. But again, you don't come into office to complain. We need arguments, not complaints. We 
the alternatives, not complaining like fingerprinting and selective truth telling. If you told us change for hope, we expect a change. We didn't come for you to complain. So again, there are valid concerns, but there's also been excessive corruption. So the whatever money that was left behind in the previous administration, we know they have been misappropriated, they have been stolen. It is not the previous government fault that this government has inflated their payroll and as a result has to turn towards cutting people's salaries to be able to accommodate this inflation in their civil service wage bill. So some of the problems have been self-inflicted. The government literally, again, they had no idea what they were doing, they were not ready. So they made some really poor choices in the beginning. That sort of like is affecting them now. Sure, they inherited big problems in the world, like global economy, recovering from Ebola, but they have no plan to get out of that and they have no idea to get out of that even two, two to three years. Which will, the more people stay in government, the more they learn, they get better at it. But for this government, it seems to be reversed. The longer they stay, the most outrageous what they say, the most outrageous their calculations become. So I don't I don't know what the argument about, oh, we inherited bad things. Yes, you inherited bad things, but yeah, I'm not sure that's any indication to know how to get out of that. So what are your recommendations with the current government? I mean, we like it or not, we have, I think, four more years to go with this government. Time is not in our favor. So what's your recommendation? I'm not an expert on government. I've never held a public sector role. So maybe there are things that they know that we don't know outside, but the obvious thing is about the corruption and the excesses. Like too much flying of people for conferences that they don't bring much back from. This will be cut to at least save some money. So I guess in retrospect, they could have labeled in their means and just really managed whatever number of civil servants they met and brought in a few qualified competent people to like be in these roles, but could just inflate the damn payroll. Some of these people they brought in had no expertise, no education, there was even no need for that. But obviously there's still time. Nothing is always too bleak, um, to fix. There are certain positions in the government that require real expertise. The Ministry of Finance, the Central Bank, the people that LPRC and people that run these sort of the positions that can help to stimulate the economy. But we, the, the president economic management team, they do not have it's sort of a high-level economic policy experience that is needed. Yeah, so just sort of like retweaking the economic management team and really figuring out how to professionalize this, this administration. It, it, like it's time we, we forget about people throwing jobs at the opposition and making inflammatory comments on Facebook. They have to focus on their work. They have to show up to work on time. They have to make the hard choices. And they have to forget about politics. They keep thinking about re-election in four years. Even from the day they got in office, they were probably in 24 years, 48 years. That's just irresponsible. You came into office, you could even justify why you should be there in the first place and you're telling us we should give you 23 more years. Well, majority of the people voted. <laughs> no, but yeah, well, they voted, but again, they voted because this government, there was some anti-establishment, anti-elite sentiment of this belief that George Rea grew up poor, so he understood the challenges of this country, he was a good man at heart. I cannot verify that whether he's a good man, but he didn't tell us anything in his campaign and we're giving any reasonable person who was not self-interested or self-motivated to vote for him because of jobs or some benefits to like that would convince them to want to vote for him. Like George Riyadh now sat in this room and talked to 10, 15 really smart people to why should vote for him, his arguments will be dead on arrival, you poke holes into them and you have nothing to say back to you in return. Clearly he doesn't know what he's doing. So given the nature of how our culture and our society is when it comes to electing leaders, I think we've had a very terrible record of actually electing bad leaders in this country. Where do you think the problem lies? And what would you say we need to work on to elect the right people? Um, we have a senatorial race coming up this year and it's going to be very important the next, I don't know, six to nine years. People were electing again, giving them authority and power over our lives, over our economy, our resources. I guess the first obvious challenge 
on the issue of education. So if we had a better educated electorate who could really demand some sort of like explanations and answers from the people who are running for office, maybe we'll get to a point where the elections are more based on policy and people are actually thinking hard enough by innovative ideas to sell to these voters. But again, if you look at other places in the world, the US, the very educated people, they, they voted for Trump. So there again, people have their self-motivated reason, whether it is fear of the outside, whether it's like some sort of like tribalistic instinct. Like even, like even Europe, you look at the rise of the far-right party, they're educated people who are voting for the wrong candidates. So yeah, we can work on our education, but there's something much fundamental. I think we don't understand the destiny of this country. If we, if we can really have politicians who are able to tell the electoral, if as a country we can have a better understanding of our history and a better understanding of our destiny, then we know who we're going to elect. Politicians have to measure themselves against that. We don't have that idea. We, I don't think we know what we stand for. I don't think we know what we want to stand for or what we're against. I'm certainly looking forward. I, I see that you, you someday will write a book about this, you know, because our identity is quite a thing that we are challenged with, um, especially our current generation. Beyond that also, I just feel like this sense of complacency, we get to a point we let people put them in power and we're complacent. We're, we say, okay, it's after two, three years, it's going to be over. We're not going to elect them again. And then we make the, the next wrong choice, you know, in candidacy. So thank you so much for <coughs> honoring our invitation. Um, do you have any final words for our listeners? Any final comment? Liberia certainly deserves better than George Weah, people who squeeze around him, himself with. As we go into 2020 and 2023, there has to be a fundamental thinking about what this country is, what this country stands for. I'm still not convinced that the likes of Waikau or the Uris and the Communists or all those who are angling to be the next president, they have not really told us why we should elect them yet. So they, they've given us complaints and arguments. They have told us what we are against. They have not told us what, we, what, what they are for. So we should raise the bar really, really high. Even though everybody is a better option than George Weah, obviously, but we shouldn't just start for that. There should be real policy debates, real arguments, real informed decisions. You shouldn't tell us you build the road for the entire country in four years. You tell us how you're going to fund that, obviously. So we need to be asking tough questions. We have to mandate people to show up to debates. They have to show up to town halls. They have to campaign. They have to publish their manifesto. The website has to be functional. We have to be able to call them and demand answers to things. Until we can do that, I don't think this country is actually going to grow anywhere. So we, we shouldn't just fall for people saying, oh, we need to change. What is the change? They should actually tell us what this change is actually going to be. Thank you so much for honoring our invitation again. Thanks to all of you for listening. Please don't forget to send us your review of this episode of Talking Pod on Spotify, SoundCloud, wherever you listen to this podcast. And be sure to share with others. You can follow us on Twitter and IG at TalkingNa. That is T-A-L-K number 8 and 8. TalkingNa. And on Facebook, Talking Media, T-A-L-K-A-Y Media. Also check out our friends from Sleepless in Monrovia by searching for them on all social media platforms. Thank you. Bye.